Welcome, Healthcare Unfiltered, the Shadi Nabhan podcast. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Folks, you are in for a treat today. I have an amazing guest, Dr. David Feigenbaum, who I actually hosted previously on my older podcast, Outspoken Oncology. Upon the release of his book, Chasing My Cure. So David wrote a book on his own journey when he was diagnosed with Castleman's disease. Uh, David was diagnosed with Castleman's disease when he was in medical school and he went through horrific chemotherapy after chemotherapy and treatments and he almost died several times, but uh, finally he was able to resurface a drug that he studied in his own lab. And he has been on that therapy for over seven years and is actually doing well. I spoke to David on my older podcast, Outspoken Oncology. I also reviewed his book, Chasing My Cure for the Healthcare Blog. So feel free to check that out on the Healthcare Blog. But Chasing My Cure as a book just came out on paper bag. And I really wanted to invite Dr. David Feigenbaum back to my new podcast, Healthcare Unfiltered, to talk about the book again and to talk about his experience and the feedback and the reception that he had about the book, especially that the book has made a national bestseller recently. And for those of you who do not know, uh, David actually was the keynote speaker. So he delivered the keynote address for the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting in 2020 amid the roaring COVID-19 pandemic. He actually gave the keynote address. And obviously, as you know, we didn't really think that the meeting would be virtual, but it ended up being virtual. So uh, I want to talk to David about his experience in delivering the keynote address and what he has uh, been doing since we spoke probably over a year and a half ago. Dr. Feigenbaum currently is an assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania in the Department of uh, Medicine, and he obviously now works as the director of the Orphan Disease uh, Center. And he is going to share with us a little bit about some new center that he is co-directing, which really looking at drug repurposing. Uh, this is really uh, obviously an, an interesting endeavor, which is really, can we, can we repurpose drugs that are being used for different indications to attempt treating a new disease that we don't have known effective therapies for? Um, that is really very important uh, to think about and to contemplate. And David is going to share with us his opinions uh, about that. I really could not be more honored and privileged that David uh, gave me almost an hour of his time to talk about his book, his experience being, a, a, being an author of a national bestseller, delivering keynote address, uh, writing an unreal, excellent review article on cytokine storm for the New England Journal of Medicine and all of the amazing things that he is doing. 
If you don't get inspired listening to this episode, you've got problems, my friend. You cannot not be inspired listening to Dr. David Fagenbaum on the Healthcare Unfiltered. So if you don't get inspired and you realize how amazing, the amazing work that David is doing, then you need to hit me up because you've got problems that we need to address immediately. Before I air the episode that I taped with Dr. David Fagenbaum on Healthcare Unfiltered, and for the record, we taped this episode on January 31st, 2021. It is going to be aired in mid-February 2021. I would like to direct you to find Healthcare Unfiltered on all podcast outlets that you could put your hands on. Apple Podcasts, iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your podcast fix, you will find Healthcare Unfiltered. Please subscribe to the show, please rate the show, please write a review to the show and refer a friend or a colleague. I will be eternally grateful. And without further ado, Dr. David Fagenbaum on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Well, folks, uh, as as promised, I'm I'm really very happy to host Dr. David Feigenbaum on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Uh, David and I met uh, uh, less than a couple of years ago, actually, when I had the opportunity to read his uh, great book, uh, Chasing My Cure, on his personal journey and personal experience. And I wrote a review on it, and I actually hosted him on my older podcast, Outspoken Oncology. Then we had a chance to meet during um, the American Society of Clinical uh, Hematology meeting in 2019. And since then, I've been following David on on social media and and looking at his career and journey, whether it's the medical career or even the, um, I'm going to call it, David, the celebrity career, but celebrity (laughs) in a good way, right? Because there's really a lot of cause here that you are chasing. So I really appreciate that. So we thought it's a good opportunity to bring David back to the show and talk a little bit into what happened over the past couple of years. Um, And this really coincides with a release of your book on paperback. And I don't know what that means, but you'll have to tell us all about what that means because maybe there's more access to it. And we'll talk about how things relate to COVID as well. So David, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you. I know this is never easy to take time of your family and busy schedule. We are both taping this actually on Sunday, January 31st, 2021. It will air on February 16 for context. So thank you very much. And maybe we'll start by the usual introduction in any podcast. Some folks may still don't know who you are. So tell us a little bit about you and um, whatever you want to share with listeners before we get started. Well, thank you so much for having me back. It's um, it's always fun to spend time with you. Like you said, whether it's at Ash or, or one of these podcasts, I, I really look forward to these. So things have been good since we connected last. So I run a center at the University of Pennsylvania called the Center for Cytokine Storm Treatment and Laboratory, where we focus on advancing research and treatment for cytokine storm disorders like Castleman disease, like what occurs in CART therapy, and also what happens in the most severe COVID patients. So, so that's my, my primary area of focus. In addition to that, I also am really championing and advocating for drug repurposing more generally. So I just took on a role as co-director of an FDA public-private partnership fully focused on drug repurposing. How do we make sure drugs approved for one thing can be used in other ways? And finally, uh, as you mentioned, I've been spending a lot of my time on trying to spread the word about my journey, chasing my cure for Castleman disease, the lessons I learned along the way. And and as you mentioned, I, I wrote a book called Chasing My Cure that came out about 
15 months ago, but just recently came out on paperback. And, and to your question, coming out on paperback really just means that it's an excuse to spread the word and, and share our message a little bit further. And it means that it's going to be available in a cheaper format. So hopefully even more people will read it. That's great. So let, let's, let's, start, let's start a little bit, um, maybe a little bit of a recap into your, your book, uh, David. Maybe just a little bit in terms for, for listeners who don't know how this got started into writing the book, what made you decide about writing the book. But maybe now that it's been 15 months, tell us, aside from what led you to re- write the book, how did you judge the reception? What kind of feedback you can share with us over the past 15 months that you've seen from readers, from media? I mean, what, you know, as you self-reflect, how, can you, how do you assess the success of the book 15 months later? Sure. So I, I felt I, I needed to write this book because, uh, well, first off, I was diagnosed with a disease called Castleman disease when I was a third year medical student. And um, I, I really struggled quite a bit with, with my illness. I spent months and months hospitalized. I even had my last rites read to me when the doctors were certain I wouldn't survive. I went on to have a number of relapses, I actually nearly died five times in a three and a half year period those ups and downs, the, the challenges that I faced battling Castleman disease, and then eventually identifying a drug from laboratory work I did that I thought could maybe work for me. And the fact that it has worked, I just crossed seven years in remission while I've been on serolimus. These things made me feel compelled that I needed to share this story. I, I learned lessons that I didn't know before I went through them. And I felt that I needed to share them with the world because I don't know how much longer I'm going to be here for. I don't know if this drug is going to work for seven years in one month or if it's going to work for 77 years. Um, but I know that I learned a lot about life that has fundamentally changed who I am. So I felt really compelled to try to put this all on, onto paper. And um, so, I, so I did that and um, came out in September of 2019 and it's really just been amazing to see um, how well received it's been. It's uh, it's been such a tough journey for my family and I. So many, so many just awful moments. Uh, you know, with some obviously some happy moments sprinkled in there. But the idea that it's inspiring people and it's it's having a positive impact beyond us kind of makes um, those memories a little bit easier to to think back on it, and it makes you know, this tough experience, um, feel, you know, not so bad this past May, um, there was kind of the peak of, of interest, uh, when chasing my cure became a national bestseller, um, towards the end of May. And, um, it's just been incredible to see, uh, and to hear from readers about, about what it's meant to them. So how, I mean, do you get notified when it's a national bestseller? Like what's the, like what, what happens based on, um, sales, uh, yeah. like get a phone call and somebody says, Hey, congrats. Like how, take us through that. It's so it's funny the way that book sales and, and bestseller list work is it's about how many book sales you had within a single week. So, so a book becomes a bestseller based on if it has a huge week of sales or not. And so to, so usually bestseller list, usually you make the bestseller list the first week your book comes out because that's when there's kind of the most interest. And, um, uh, we did not make any of the national bestseller list. We had a, a huge first week um, back in September of 2019. I think there were like 
8,000 or maybe more books sold that week, um, which most weeks would put you on almost all bestseller lists, but it happened to be a week that Malcolm Gladwell's first book came out in, in, in six years. And that, that Malcolm, uh, I'm telling you <laughs> that there were some, there were some, some authors much more prolific than me. Um, I don't know why David Fagenbaum was on the, on the same list as some of these other folks for that week, but anyway, it was, it was, it was a great launch, but just, but you know, bestseller list are relative to sales based on other books. Right. And so we didn't make it early on, but there was some great momentum um, from the fact that the book got into a lot of people's hands and, and thankfully people enjoyed it. And so, um, and, and I think it, it's also really inspired people to, 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 to live differently, um, which is, which is really why we wrote it. And then this past May, uh, I was on fresh air, uh, which, uh, which was on NPR and, and had a, a great listenership and it happened that week. And I don't know which one contributed more, but it, it made a national bestseller list that week. And I was on NPR. I also had a viral TikTok video that had, had like 3 million views. And so I don't know if it was the NPR fresh air or if it was the, the viral TikTok video, but for, for one of the, one of the two, or maybe both ended up getting us on a bestseller list. I did listen to your NPR interview actually. And, uh, but, uh, I didn't see the TikTok video. So you have to send that. I'll, I'll send it to you because I want to link it to the podcast notes. I think I'll, I'll send it to you. It's, it's, um, uh, yeah, it, it cracks me up, uh, but, but no, I'll definitely send it to you. So you could be a national bestseller afterwards. Like, do, do you, is there an email list? Uh, you just get an email and says, Hey, congratulations. And that's what, uh, that's how it works. So for us, my publisher, um, I, I'm really fortunate to have a wonderful publisher, um, Ballantine, which is within the Penguin Random House imprint. They uh, notified me the following week and said, "Hey, hey, you made this list. Um, congratulations! This is a national bestseller list." Um, and so that was it. Was I, I guess it was yeah, it was just an email from the publishers, but it was still so, really exciting. Can you promise me that I have some role in the movie, though? I, I, I mean, something like, at least like, I don't know, I could, I could be your driver. I could be like somebody who met you at Ash. You'll have to get me some role. I'm trying how to- about, How about a role model? How about a role model? Can we, can we put you in that role? Can we put you in the role of a role model? Someone I look up to? Because there's, there's no way. I mean, for sure, you're going to be, uh, they're going to do a documentary or something. I'm trying to think, see, I'm thinking ahead already. What, what can I play? Like, you know, you met me at Ash and, you know, and that's, I think that's a good role. I think it's perfect. We got a good warrior flex in yeah, together. We got, we got that okay. nice flex together. Okay, I'll talk to my agent, see how much I can charge. <laughs> deal, deal. Um, so, so one of the things though that you that you really, I think one of the things that are very intriguing about your book has been this repurposing of yep. um, a, a drug. Uh, can you just take us through this? I mean, how much of this was luck? Yeah. And then, I mean, to your point, you mentioned... I don't know if I, this is going to work for seven years and a month, seven years and mm-hmm. four months. How much does this linger over your head day in and day out? And now you're married and, and you have a daughter versus when you That's were right. driving. Like how, how much does this really affect you? Yeah, these are, these are really important questions. Um, as, as far as the, the process to find this repurposed drug. So I mentioned I was diagnosed when I was in medical school and then, um, I, I had a number of relapses and, um, when I, when I nearly died for the fourth time, that was while I was on an experimental drug It was the only drug that's ever undergone a randomized control trial for Castleman's it's an IL six blocker. And it actually works really well for about one third to one half of patients. Like it's a, it's a lifesaver. People will just walk out of the ICU on it. But for 
the other about one half to two thirds of patients, um, we don't benefit from the IL-6 blocker. And so I, I learned kind of the hard way that, that I was one of those patients because I relapsed on that drug. And my doctor um, explained to me that there were no more drugs in development. Um, there were no more promising leads. And I had at that stage received all the drugs that had ever been given to patients with Castleman disease. So the plan was that we would continue to treat me with multi-agent chemotherapy each of my subsequent relapses and, um, you know, hope that, uh, you know, that, that I, I keep surviving, but of course, each of these relapses was incredibly life-threatening and, um, I actually, I'm, I'm very close to the lifetime max for adromycin. And so, so there's, you know, there's, there's other reasons why you don't want to continue to do repeated seven agent chemo. So, um, at that stage, uh, I, w- I was just, just, distraught to, to learn that. But I, I turned to my dad, my sisters, and my girlfriend at the time, Caitlin, who you mentioned, and I promised them I would dedicate the rest of my life, however long that may be, to trying to find something. And when I, when I said I was trying to find some sort of treatment, I knew, I knew implicitly, I didn't state it, and I don't think I thought about it too much, but, but I knew I wasn't going to develop a new drug. Like that just, that wasn't on the table. I wasn't going to identify a new molecule that I was going to be able to develop in you know, six months and test on myself. That just, that wasn't even fathomable. What was fathomable was if I could figure out what was happening in my immune cells when this cytokine storm erupts and I could find some signaling pathway or cell type that seemed to be too activated or maybe, maybe too, too not activated enough, which is less likely, but, um, but that I could find something wrong in my cells. And then I could look in large drug databases and see what drugs are already FDA approved that can either increase what's too low or decrease what's too high. I could maybe have a shot. And so it was really all about, let me profile my samples. Let me see if I can find a susceptibility and then let's hope. I mean, you said, use the word luck, which is a totally appropriate let's hope that what I find wrong in my cells, there's already a drug that can, they can fix that because most of the time you find something wrong in, in cells from a patient with a disease. And unfortunately there isn't something that's already out there. And so it required focused approach, but it also required a good bit of luck. But in the book and in a message that I, I try to share a lot is, is this idea of turning hope into action. So, so yes, there's a level of luck and yes, there's a level uh, there's some amount of, you just have to kind of hope that things line up. But, but, but my message and my main message in the book is to say that if you hope for something, if you pray for something, which I was really hoping someone would find a drug for me. And if you are really hoping for something, then you should take action every day to get closer to that, which you're hoping for. What can you do today to get closer to the thing that you're hoping for? And so, so that's what I did. And, um, and I eventually found serolimus. It's an mTOR inhibitor. It's been around forever. And um, well, first I, I found that the mTOR signaling pathway was, was highly active in my samples, specifically in my lymph node tissue. I did a, a very simple and cheap immunohistochemistry experiment in my lymph node tissue. Um, and I, I found that there was tremendous uh, increase in mTOR activation. And I did that experiment because of some proteomics data that I had generated. And so um, I started taking it. And as we said, it's it's been over seven years. And, and then to answer your question around how does, how does this weigh on me? I mean, as you said, the moment that my daughter was born a little bit over two years ago, things changed a little bit, you know, before she was born, um, it, it was kind of like, look, I, I'm doing everything I can. And if, if this drug stops working, like, you know, I went out swinging, I, you know, I did, I did what I could. Um, but you know, as you know, there's this extra, when you have a, a child, there's this extra, like, I'm not, I, I can't just be okay knowing I did everything I could. Like, like, you know, failure is not an option here. We, we've got it. So, so it's, I think it's probably made me 
um, even more focused on work. But I do think, and I think a lot of people in dealing with stressful situations do this. I found that the more I focus on my science and the more I focus on dissecting the cytokine storm and Castleman disease, better understanding treatments, it makes me less stressed because I know that I'm doing everything I can do. David, do you know, are there a lot of people with Castleman now taking the same medicine you're taking? I mean, have you, have you been able to reach other patients similar to you who receive the same medicine? We have um, in kind of a uh, non-traditional way. We did publish um, a paper in um, the Journal of Clinical Investigation about a year and a half ago, um, which certainly got our, you know, our data and, and what we were doing in front of a large um, number of physicians. But actually before that, um, back in 2017, um, there was an article written in the New York Times about, about this story and about my journey. And that actually led to a lot of off-label use of serolimus. And so the good news is we have a, a natural history registry. So we, so we were able to get a lot of those patients to enroll into our study and get data on whether it's working or not. We also launched a trial about a year ago, um, just shortly before COVID hit, we opened up this clinical trial. And of course we, we've struggled with, with enrollment, but we have this trial open of this drug. We also know anecdotally that, that a large number of patients have received it um, off-label. Unfortunately, it only seems to be working for about one-third of the people who've gotten it so far, and that's, and that's of people who don't respond to IL-6 blockade. So one-third benefit from IL-6 blockade, and then about one-third of the remaining two-thirds will benefit from serolimus. So we're still looking at almost 50% of, um, of the Castleman's population that, that we really still need to accelerate in advance therapies for. And plus for people that are benefiting from serolimus, we, we also don't know how long it's going to last for. So, so that's why we keep, we keep pushing forward the science. And since the last time we spoke, um, have you identified additional agents to the extent you can share that might have activity against gasoline? Yeah, we're excited about um, JAK1-2 inhibitors. So like ruxolidinib and baricitinib. Um, so we also, we published this in JCI Insight about nine months ago. Um, basically um, finding that there's a there's hyperactivation of the mTOR pathway within um, Castleman disease um, peripheral blood mononuclear cells. So if we take out white blood cells from a Castleman's patient, we stimulate them with cytokines. They activate mTOR to a greater extent than a healthy normal person would, and we found that that's JAK dependent. So if you if you treat those cells in a dish with a JAK inhibitor, you can prevent that from happening. Um, we also know that IL six is really important, and IL six signals through JAK two, and so we think that. We think that uh, the nice, the advantage of a JAK1-2 inhibitor over either an IL-6 blocker or an mTOR inhibitor is that JAK1 and JAK2 are important in so many different pathways. It's kind of like a messier approach. And, and as you know, from, from, from your work, the messier you are, the more pathways you hit, the more likely you are to be effective. But of course, the flip side is the more side effects you're going to have. And so, you know, medicine and science is all about weighing those two. But we feel that um, that a JAK1-2 inhibitor would could be really promising. And actually, gosh, just this past week, the same week that I was celebrating seven years in remission on, on serolimus, um, a young patient, a 16-year-old girl, um, actually near you in, in the Chicago area, um, she just found out from her doctor that she's, um, she's achieved a remission and she's basically spent most of the last year in the hospital, um, but in a remission on a JAK1-2 inhibitor based on um, work from our lab. So, so, you know, we're still chasing this thing, you know, people will read, read my book, Chasing My Cure, and they'll hear the title and they'll be like, that's great. You know, you figured it out, you chased your cure, you caught it. But, but I, I really don't feel that way. I feel that we're, we're still very much in the chase, whether it's for me or for other patients. And um, we're very much still chasing after this thing. 
And David, you mentioned now you have a formal center called uh, drug repurposing. So I'm just curious a little bit, like, you know, um, and again, I apologize if it's a silly question, but I'm trying to think, how do you decide which disease, for example, you are trying to investigate something to repurpose for, and then how do you choose which drug you bring from the bag? Mm-hmm. Like how, is there a, I don't know, I guess what's the process, what disease you're looking at? Does it have to have a specific incidence or prevalence? Um, I'm just curious how that works. These are really, really important questions and they're things that, that our, our group is, is that we're thinking about a lot. So the, the premise, as we said before, is that there are about 2,500 FDA-approved compounds. And those 2,500 FDA-approved drugs are approved for somewhere around 3,000 diseases. Um, but we know that there are approximately 7,000 additional diseases that don't have anything approved for them. We also know that many of those 7,000 diseases that don't have anything approved for them can in many cases benefit from some of the 2,500 that are approved. There's just no FDA approval for their use in that condition. I mean, you know that somewhere between one quarter and one third of all prescriptions written by a physician are actually for off-label uses. So, so there are a lot of things that everyone just knows it works for that condition and they just write the prescription, even though it doesn't actually have a formal approval for it. But then there are also a lot of cases where no one knows that that drug could be used in a new way. And to your point, how do you figure out which drugs and which diseases do you go after to figure out the ones where no one knows that there's a link? Like serolimus to Castleman's, no one knew there was a link. We made the link. Now we know that there's a link, at least for a fraction of patients. So how do you figure out the next serolimus or, or the next thalidomide? Thalidomide is an incredible example, right? You know, initially developed for um, morning sickness in pregnant women, caused horrible problems, uh, terrible um, birth defects in children. And then you years later comes out as, as this lifesaver for multiple myeloma. So, so how many more things are there like that? Especially, I mean, that's a great example because no one would have ever thought morning sickness, birth defects, myeloma, right? And so I think that those are the examples that we're really looking for, the ones where you wouldn't necessarily have thought about it. So as far as how do you try to do this, I think our first step, and so what the entity is called is it's called the Cure Drug Repurposing Collaboratory. So we've combined the word collaboration and laboratory. So drug repurposing collaboratory. And it's a public-private partnership between the FDA, the NIH, the Critical Path Institute, and a number of academics like myself. And so how do you get a group of us to figure out you know, what to do um, and where to focus our attention? Well, well I've argued, and I'm co-directing it along with um, uh, Marco Shida from, uh, from the Critical Path Institute. And I, I've really encouraged that the first thing that we need to do is we, we need to map out exactly how you get from a drug that is approved for one thing to that drug then being used for something else. So what are all the steps? As you said, is it high throughput drug screens? Is it off-label drug use? Is it, you know, intentional translational research like we did in my lab? Is it artificial intelligence on, on, you know, published literature, but how do you figure out those hits? How do you validate the hits? How do you move those hits forward to open label studies, randomized controlled trials, FDA approval, clinical practice, but what is the, what, what is each, you know, what, what's each bucket along the way? Um, and then, and then once we lay out this path and, and really kind of the idea is that it's all roads, all roads you could possibly take to get a drug to be used in a new way. Then we start focusing on, well, what are the roadblocks along the way? Okay. If the path is there and if 
it's been done for thalidomide and serolimus, you know, why isn't it being done for, for so many others? And I, I think the bottom line is that there are just no incentives for companies to take these things forward. The vast majority of FDA approved drugs are already generic. And so even if we using technology today in 2021 are able to figure out that some old drug is going to be effective in a new way, and we only now know it in 2021, we didn't know it back then, if the drug's already generic, no one's going to make money off this new use. And you may be aware that if you, even if you do the trial of the drug, the, of the generic, you prove that it works, we actually couldn't then get the FDA to approve it for new use unless the sponsor who actually owns the original molecule actually takes that forward to the FDA. And if it's already generic, they're not going to spend the time and the money to put together a submission to the FDA. So it's almost like a futile effort because you can do all the work and, and that sponsor just doesn't have the incentive to actually move it forward. So we're trying to think through all of the, you know, all of the, the, the roads, all of the roadblocks. And then the third step is, well, how do we start clearing some of those roadblocks off? And, and then hopefully we can start, you know, flying some, 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 some cars down the road. Wow. That, that's just listening to you. I mean, I, it's, it's amazing how much work that is. Now, me and you met in person in December 2019 during Ash. And at the time we were talking about uh, the restaurant I was going to take you to when you come into the ASCO meeting in 2020. Uh, because everybody was thinking we're going to have a great live meeting with over mm -hmm. 40,000 people. And you're yep. the keynote speaker. You were the keynote right. speaker. And, and, and uh, then something happened called COVID-19. Yep. So I want to dissect this just a little bit uh, because obviously, you know, everybody has been impacted by the pandemic um, to many extents. But I want to, 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 to tackle maybe two, two subjects. Number one, is COVID-19 as a disease which had no therapy whatsoever. I mean, now there are a couple of treatments that may work. And, but you know, at the time, uh, I recall seeing a lot of your posts trying to put your brains and your colleagues into, yep. okay, let's try to see if we can repurpose any drug yep. that might work about this analogous to Castleman's disease. Mm -hmm. I want you to take us through what you have done in that uh, area. Uh, and then maybe share with us a little bit about your experience being the keynote speaker of, of ASCO 2020, which um, was an amazing, amazing, amazing um, talk and, and speech. I wish it was live, obviously, but I actually do think that you probably reached more people because it, was, because it was virtual, because you had more people who were down in. So take us through these two things. Sure. Um, so first off, I'm, I'm glad you're bringing up COVID. I'm glad to see you're well and your family's well, and to know that know that uh, that, that you're you know dealing with this. Our our, our family also um, has been fortunate um, from a health perspective. Though of course it's affected everyone in so many ways. Um, so you're exactly right. When when COVID first um, emerged, we were in a position where. Um, as I shared earlier, I focus on studying cytokine storm disorders, understanding what's going on, why does the immune system get out of control? And then the other thing I focus on is drug repurposing. How do you find drugs that you can then repurpose to try to stop the immune system from being out of control? And so you probably remember Friday, the 13th of March was the day that kind of everything in America stopped. And um, on that Friday, the 13th, I found myself um, sitting there and I was 
hoping that some research lab out there, I was thinking to myself, I hope that some researchers will read what we've done for Castleman disease. Maybe they'll read that JCI paper I mentioned, think through the ways that we found some drugs that could be repurposed and, um, you know, really make progress against this disease. And, and of course, if drug repurposing happens, I hope that they'll be systematic about the way they track it because we found that you have to really you know, track these things systematically to really uh, figure out when there's a signal or, or not. Um, and then about a minute later, I thought to myself, why am I hoping that some researcher somewhere, you know, follows in our footsteps or does, you know, the things that we've done, you know, I, I wouldn't be alive today if I just said, gosh, I really hope that someone figures out a drug that could be repurposed for me. So I, I just felt this real, um, I'm just feeling that I, I needed to do something. And so that following Monday, I, I connected with, um, with my team and, and we decided to launch something called the Corona Project. So Corona um, is the, the COVID-19 registry of new and repurposed agents. And the idea of Corona is to have a central database where every drug reported to be given to any patient with COVID-19 gets put into this database. So we could have a running list of all of the drugs that have been tried against COVID, how frequently they've been tried, and then a very subjective measure as to whether it worked or not. And so you might say to me, well, why would you even try to get a subjective measure as to whether it worked or not? Because this disease is so heterogeneous and um, you really need randomized controlled trials to really know whether a drug works or not in COVID. Um, and so the reason we do it is because we're trying to get a sense for what drugs are being used most frequently, what looks promising right now, and what do we need to move forward to randomized controlled trials. And when we started it, we thought, you know, this is important because there might be a few dozen drugs that will be tried for COVID. So we better track the few dozen. Shadi, we're at over 400 different drugs that have been given to humans with COVID-19. And of course, that doesn't count all of the, the drugs tested in the lab, but over 400. And there's only 2,500 drugs the FDA has ever approved for anything. So almost 20, almost 20% of all drugs approved for anything have been tried to treat COVID. I mean, so it's incredible, right? Wow. wow. So, so doctors are trying all kinds of things. Researchers are trying all kinds of things. Companies are trying all kinds of things and the value of Corona and actually um, Corona was just uh, cited today in, in a front page article in the New York Times is, is providing the data for, for one of their, their points. So Corona, the value of it is that you need to have all of these drugs listed in one place. You can't, you know, you can't fight a war or, or, or do pretty much anything if you don't keep track of, of, you know, what weapons you're using or, you know, what, what initiatives are, are being done. You need to track it. So we're tracking it all in one place. Um, and we're also working directly with a group at the FDA to specifically pull out what drugs look most promising so that they can either A, fund further research along with BARDA into those drugs um, as a funder, or B, launch an in-house trial of those drugs. And so we're actually working on, on the B part of it now. They've been using the data for A for a while, but, um, but yeah, now we're working with FDA to try to say, okay, these 10 drugs look most promising. Let's push them forward. So just, just to, bear, to understand, because I'm trying to absorb this, there are 400 different drugs that have been tried for COVID-19 worldwide. Yeah, in, in 10 months. Okay, I, I know. I mean, listeners probably need to gasp here a little bit. This is uh, I, this is a, it's gasp worthy, isn't it? I mean, I, it's just incredible. I, <laughs> and, and what it's proven is that when there is an urgency, you know, people are going to try a lot of different things. And um, and of course, those four hundred drugs, most of them are actually already FDA approved for something else. Most of them are repurposed. A very small fraction of them. I don't know the exact number, but I would guess probably somewhere around ten percent of those drugs, forty to fifty of them, are actually new agents that were developed 
with the hope of being effective for this condition, the vast majority are, are repurposed agents. Now, that data you're sharing with the FDA or, or additional investigators, look, all I know is remdesivir, dexamethasone, and oxygen right now, and maybe plasma and you know some antibodies, not, not to undermine mm-hmm. all of these, but uh, is there anything that uh, either families or people or patients who might be impacted by COVID-19 that they should be hopeful about? Yeah. So I'm actually becoming more and more hopeful. I was very hopeful early on. I was very disappointed over the summer as a number of large trials came out. The most frequently used drugs in our database are hydroxychloroquine and lopinavir, ritonavir, and convalescent plasma. All three of those treatment approaches have failed to demonstrate clear benefits in randomized controlled trials, yet they continue to be the three most frequently prescribed agents. Um, so lobinavir, ritonavir, remdesivir, and convalescent plasma. So this, again, kind of highlights why it's so important to track things. You know, we're still, we've got all this data and they continue to go up in numbers despite the fact that the data doesn't support them. However, so you can imagine I was really disappointed this summer when our most frequently prescribed drugs worldwide for this pandemic didn't seem to be helping anyone. So people are just giving drugs that probably aren't helping. But I've become much more optimistic because um, what's become really clear is that you can't, there's going to be no one size fits all drug. And it part, part of the reason for that is in COVID, SARS-CoV-2 does a really good job when it first infects you to um, evade your immune system. And that's why you're asymptomatic for at least five to as many as 14 days after you've been infected. It's because it's actually able to escape your immune system in a number of ways. And then by the time your immune system becomes aware that there's this infection, it's spread quite a bit. And actually um, the virus also prevents a few really key antiviral aspects of the immune system from kicking in. So by the time the immune system turns on, it goes into overdrive trying to fight this virus. And for the majority of people, even though it goes into overdrive for a moment, for the majority of people, it then gets control over the virus and then you get better. That's the, that's the typical approach. It's too weak early on, it, it ramps up, it controls the virus and you go back to living. But for a small fraction of people, about 10%, um, they're, they're experiencing what we call a cytokine storm, where by the time it ramps up, it becomes the immune system becomes such an activated, it gets in such an activated state and produces so many cytokines, so inflammatory molecules that cause further inflammation, that it can't control itself. And so you end up having significant collateral damage to vital organs. And so as a result, you can imagine that drugs that do different things are going to be needed at different times. So early on in the disease course, you want to boost the immune response. You want to use something like inhaled interferon, which actually demonstrated was demonstrated this summer in a randomized control trial to be effective. It was a relatively small trial, so we're all eager for it to be, uh, to be repeated. But the data we have suggests that you want to use things like inhaled interferon early to boost the immune response. So that way, you don't have this issue of having this kind of catch-up period in the middle of this lag when, um, when it finally uh, becomes aware of the virus and then gets out of control. Once you're in the middle stages, so now you are actually showing symptoms of the virus, and um, but you haven't been hospitalized yet, this is when a drug like fluvoxamine, fluvoxamine was developed for obsessive compulsive disorder, but again, large randomized control trial, or at least medium-sized randomized control trial, showed that if you give it to patients who are not yet hospitalized, you can significantly reduce hospitalization. At this stage, you could also potentially use a drug called colchicine, which has been around forever, used for gout and and, and familiar Mediterranean fever. Um, At that stage, and it seems that there's at least a trend and it's it's not a strong, it wasn't a strong result, but it seems that it potentially also, if you're in that position 
newly infected, showing symptoms that you can reduce hospitalizations. Another uh, set of drugs are, are these monoclonal antibodies um, that were developed by Regeneron and Eli Lilly. Of course, they're developed for COVID. So these are not repurposing agents. These are you know, developed for COVID. Um, you can use those drugs at that same time. And again, significantly reduce the number of people who go on to be hospitalized. Then once you're hospitalized, now drugs like baricidinib or dexamethasone, particularly once you're already on supplemental oxygen, are actually quite effective. I mean, the dexamethasone, you can reduce mortality by 20% in all people who are on oxygen when they're started on dexamethasone. That's huge. You can decrease mortality by 35% if they're in ICU. Um, and so, and then there's even another window, as soon as you're admitted to the ICU within 24 hours of admission, if you're given a dose of tocilizumab, there seems to be benefit. So it has to be the right time. If you give tocilizumab too early or too late, it doesn't have any impact, but it looks like if you give it, which is an IL-6 receptor blocker, if you give it right um, upon admission to the ICU, you can also improve outcomes. So I think that the point that I'm mentioning is that I've mentioned a number of drugs and of course, heparin at a therapeutic level, as opposed to low-dose heparin also seems to improve outcomes once patients are hospitalized. So there's a number of drugs that have shown benefit. You just need to use them at the right time. And they're not, none of them are cure-alls for everything. And none of them are even uh, uniformly effective for that one fraction, but they are certainly saving lives. And so the work that I'm trying to do is to try to push these promising agents forward, identify additional trials that need to be done, and then find other drugs that are, that are like them um, that can maybe even be better. And you, you talk about the cytokine storm and all that. You, you know a couple of things about cytokine storm. I think you wrote a paper in this throwaway journal, nobody reads, called New England Journal of Medicine. That's, that's like, right. You know, it's, I, I've never heard of it. I don't think any of my listeners have. But that was, um, that was a great, great paper in, in all seriousness. I, this must have been at least one year in the works. I mean, it was like, it's really a very good resource for cytokine storm. And I, I loved it. One of my favorite papers. Oh, that means a lot. Thank you. It was, um, it was a tremendous amount of work. Um, I, I had the incredible honor of co-authoring it with Carl June, who is um, someone uh, like you that I really look up to. And um, he's, uh, he, he's just, he's, he's an incredible person and also scientist. And so uh, we, we started working on the paper together um, I think in May or June. And um, I don't think I did anything other than that paper for, for about two months. Uh, it was just, you know, all in all day, every day. I think Carl spent almost as much time as I did during those couple months. Um, and then we got it to something that we were really proud of um, towards the end of end, end of 2020. And, um, and, and they turned it around pretty rapidly, the, the various reviews and ended up, ended up running, as you know, in, um, in early December. And what I was so proud of with the cytokine storm paper is that cytokine storms the, as an umbrella have never really been brought together in, in one place and um, had kind of a, a definition put around what is a cytokine storm. There, there were definitions that existed around cytokine storm in the setting of CART therapy or cytokine storm in the setting of GVHD or cytokine storm in the setting of Castleman disease, um, but, or, or HLH, but there had never been a at least an attempt at a unifying um, cytokine storm definition. And so Carl and I came up with what we think is a, is a starting place. And, um, and it's been really well received. Um, I think that generally it seems like a good starting point, but, but we say that you have to have three things to have a cytokine storm. The first is you have to have elevated cytokine levels in the blood. Um, makes sense. Um, the second is that you need to have acute inflammatory symptoms that correlate with those elevated cytokine um, levels, which again, makes sense. And the third is that you need to have secondary organ dysfunction, that if there's a pathogen, that organ dysfunction is worse than necessary to control the pathogen. Because as, as you know, when you are fighting off something, there's some kind of 
commensurate renal dysfunction or, um, or, or hepatic dysfunction that just comes from the fact that you're, you're not well with a virus, but the, but to have a cytokine storm, it has to, ha- has to be worse secondary organ dysfunction than you would have expected from just normally controlling the, the pathogen. And then if there's no pathogen, any organ dysfunction, um, due to cytokine is, um, is certainly pathogenic. A, a couple nuances to this that I think are important is that well, how do you figure out if something is, you know, due to the cytokines and it's too much or too little? And and the way that we defined one way to look into this is if suppressing the immune system with a drug like dexamethasone or with a cytokine blocker like tocilizumab improves outcomes, then by definition, that tells you that the immune system was too activated. And so it's our way to say, that's our way to probe it and say, okay, if, if, if giving tocilizumab improves outcomes, then this must've been a cytokine storm because clearly you had too much IL-6 or you had too much inflammation. Um, and then the, the one criticism we've gotten, which I think is a very fair point, is that we say you have to have elevated cytokines, but we don't say which ones and we don't say how elevated they have to be, um, which I totally agree. And I would love to be able to say which cytokines and, and how elevated they need to be. But unfortunately, the data just don't exist yet. So no one's actually done the work to look across many cytokine storm disorders all at once to figure out what is that threshold and which cytokines are need to be up that are really critical. So I'm hopeful this is a good starting point, And I'm hopeful that Unfortunately, due to this awful pandemic, I'm hopeful that people will come together around the idea that we need to figure this out because cytokine storms are, as you know, oftentimes um, significantly, uh, very deadly and, um, and cause significant morbidity. I'm going to take you back uh, in memory lane to, um, to before the, you know, in December 2019 at ASH or even mm-hmm. in January, as you were thinking that in a few months, you're going to speak to thousands and thousands of uh, oncologists across the globe in your keynote. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I probably, I can be, I, I, you know, I, I, it could be a safe bet that uh, as you were thinking what you were going to talk about in January 2020, you were not thinking COVID-19 at all. But as things progressed and as the pandemic, um, take me through how you decided to shift and pivot your keynote address to bring oncology into COVID-19. I mean, it must have been a lot of um, effort and, and, and thoughts because, you know, I mean, you're obviously excited about sharing your journey and talking about oncology, probably rare disease, all of mm-hmm. these things. And then COVID-19 hit and you can't really give a keynote without talking about COVID-19, That's right? right? I mean, That's right. The, the first time the meeting ever becomes virtual. So just take me through the process into how you decided to, how did you decide to, uh, what topics to cover during that keynote address, which was seen by thousands and thousands of of people? Um, Because it was, I recall, it was very emotional. It was, it hit all of the points. And I think you've gotten a lot of accolades appropriately on that. But take me through just how you you pivoted your your mind frame and, and, and how did you come up with that product towards the end? Yeah, these are these are important questions. For me, I think that um, I I kind of embraced for the keynote that I, I always think it's so important to be just you know your authentic self, and so I, I think I tried to just really embrace you know what were the things that were most important to me at that time, and what were the things that I thought would be important to to the audience. And so for me, I felt it was very important 
that I get across some of the really key lessons that I learned from my journey from chasing my cure in particular lessons that I would have wanted my doctors to know, or maybe lessons I learned from some of my doctors, but, but that really felt critical was, okay, you have this incredible opportunity to talk to thousands, as you said, uh, of, of oncologists who reach maybe millions of, of cancer patients worldwide. Um, and so having an opportunity like that for me, I felt like if I can make sure that I can get across the really key lessons I learned from my journey that I think could maybe help them or maybe help one of their patients, that's got to be woven throughout this. Um, secondly, I really wanted to get across information about Castleman disease. I felt that this was such a good opportunity to just raise awareness about a disease that, um, that really has been underappreciated and certainly um, uh, has very little public awareness, despite the fact that it's about as common as ALS. And, and thankfully, there's a lot of a uh, awareness for ALS. But unfortunately, there are a lot of rare diseases like Castleman's that are equally as common and, and in many ways um, similarly um, uh, devastating that, um, that have much less awareness. So I felt that I needed to, to really get in some good Castleman's content. And then the third thing that I really wanted to get across, um, which I used both my Castleman's journey and then also some COVID is really around, um, this idea of drug repurposing is to say, if I can share an example with these incredibly influential and brilliant doctors of how a drug that was sitting in, in my neighborhood pharmacy and is sitting in every single hospital pharmacy could be a lifesaver for me when, when we were out of options, maybe that is the, the extra impetus for them to, to think critically about maybe there is another option out there that we haven't tried and not to try anything and everything under the sun. I don't think that we should try 400 drugs for every disease out there. I mean, I think that that causes harm along the way. And I think that it's hard to interpret, but I do think that, um, that showing this example of, okay, it can be done. You know, there was a big element of luck as we discussed at the beginning of the talk, but, um, but there, but definitely it can be done hoping that that will inspire these, um, these doctors to, to think through this um, more critically. And with that was, was wanting to, to tie in um, the COVID piece uh, because COVID, the COVID work we do really is all around repurposing. And I felt that this was another important example, but as you know, the way I tried to pull those three things together was really to frame it as a talk around, the power of collaboration. And, and as you know, um, uh, Skip, who's the, the president um, this past year, his um, message was uniting to conquer cancer. That was the theme, um, uniting together to conquer cancer. And so I felt that I could tie each of those together by, by getting across the point that, that not one of those things that I just told you about could have been done if it was me on my own, or, or it's just a doctor on their own or a researcher on their own or a patient on their own. It really requires this sort of cross stakeholder collaboration. Yeah. And, uh, nobody thought that ASCO 2021 would be also virtual, but it I is know. going to be uh, virtual. Have you gotten a lot of feedback after the keynote uh, address? Uh, did you get any, like people reach out to you and uh, stuff like that? Yeah, it was, it was really special to, to hear from folks, especially I heard from a lot of folks who had treated Castleman's patients and most of them saying I'd only treated one or two in my career and this is what happened. And so, so that was special. I heard from a number of people who trained in Boston who worked with Benjamin Castleman, who was, of course, you know, the person who first described the disease and it's, it's named after. Um, and, and yeah, I just heard some, some really special, kind of similar to what we were saying at the beginning of the show around... Um, uh, what it's been like to hear from readers of Chasing My Cure. Again, um, a lot of people emailed me afterwards, physicians to kind of share their personal story. And then that happens a lot with the book too. People will email me after they've read the book or, or they heard a talk like that, and they'll share something deeply personal about their own journey. Uh, a loved one who had 
cancer or um, an experience they had with one of their patients that they're just such powerful stories that they, they really have a big effect on me. And it's interesting because I, I, I respond to, to just about every one of them. Maybe there's a few that I haven't gotten back to, but I respond to just about every one of them, but I usually don't hear a follow-up after my response. And what that signals to me is I think a lot of people just want to, they just want to tell their story. And like, they know that I kind of get it because they've just heard, you know, they've either read my book or they heard me give a talk. So they're like, you know, this is someone I can, you know, send my story to, I can go through the effort of writing it down. And, and there is something really therapeutic about getting this stuff down, but they usually don't stay in touch. I think that because I don't know if they're looking to stay in touch. I think what they're looking to do is, is to, you know, is to share what they went through that's similar to what, what I went through. And if in some way that that's helpful for them, then, then I'm okay with it. So is there another book you're working? Well, we, we, I'm sure there's a movie somewhere and we already agreed what my role will be. I mean, we already <laughs> agreed. Uh, I will be very, very, my, my feelings will be hurt if I see somebody else playing the person you met at Ash. But is there another book in you that you're thinking about? Well, there's, there, there are a couple, um, there's a few things. So there's, um, a, uh, there's interest, uh, Wendy Feinerman, who is the, uh, the producer of, uh, Forrest Gump and, uh, and some other really amazing, um, movies. She's, she's trying to turn this thing into a movie. And so what I've learned is that, um, Hollywood, uh, moves at its own pace. It's either really slow or really fast. And you just kind of you know, it, it's kind of up to luck. And so we'll see if Wendy turns us into a movie, um, but she's, she's working on it. So we'll see you play yourself. <laughs> Definitely not. I think well, that would, I think that, that would, that would not be, not, not, I don't, I definitely acting is, is, is not going to be one of one of the things that I would be, would be very good at, but, but no. So I, and again, there's always a very low likelihood. These things really turn into anything, but it's, it is, it is really cool to have someone like Wendy Feinerman. I'm interested. She obviously, I, I I, lo I loved Forrest Gump. And so um, I, I do, I do honestly, you know, I mean, I know we joke about it, but I actually do think that there's a, either a movie or a documentary there. I think there are a lot of messages that I, I, you know, genuinely believe that it should. And I think with the same, with the, with the proper hands in terms of screenplays and things like that, I think it should be turned out. I still think you should play yourself. But, <laughs> um, how about another book? Have you thought about another book? You know, I haven't put too much thought into another book. I think that, um, I've loved so much um, hearing from readers of this book. Uh, and so I still want to get this book, you know, out to, to more and more people. And so I feel, you know, that I kind of need to stay focused in that sense on, you know, really continuing to share the messages from Chasing My Cure. But again, I, I've, I've so loved being able to, to hear from readers and to see the impact it's had. I, you know, I would love in the future to do an, another book that could, you know, be similarly, you know, have a similar impact on individuals. But, but for now, I just really feel that, you know, this is the time. I think that um, I wish so badly that we as a country and a world didn't need to be so resilient right now. And I, and I wish so badly we didn't all need to be hopeful the way that we need to now. And I wish so badly that, that this pandemic wasn't doing what it's doing to all of us. Um, but unfortunately, many of the challenges that, that so many of us are facing due to COVID um, certainly have connections to some of the challenges that I've, I've gone through over the years and um, trying to create hope when, when there really wasn't any or, or figuring out how to get back up after, after I certainly got knocked down a few times, which I know a lot of listeners um, have certainly been knocked down a few times from COVID. I wish that it wasn't so relevant, but unfortunately it's really relevant right now. And, um, 
And I think that it's more relevant now than it was when it came out in, um, in 2019. And so I do feel that it's important to continue to try to, to get the word out about Chasing My Care. Well, thanks, David. I really hope that listeners who listen to this podcast, this conversation, pick up the book. Uh, they can find it on Amazon. They can find it pretty much everywhere. And um, uh, I think now it's on paperback. So there's also That's a cheaper right. version uh, than the hardcover. Um, you have been uh, in a lot of media. They can actually listen to your story. They can probably just put, a, put you on YouTube and they'll see some of the interviews that you've done. Um, any last thoughts? You've been very generous with your time on a Sunday. So any final thoughts you want to leave us with? Well, I've just loved having an opportunity to chat as, as I always do. Um, enjoy, enjoy catching up with you. I, I think that I might close with just a few of those lessons. You know, I talked about how there's some lessons that are important right now. I might just highlight a few of them that, um, that immediately come to mind that, that feel you know, very relevant right now. Um, I think the first one we talked about a little bit, this idea of turning hope into action. So during really tough times, I think it's important to um, reflect on what you're hoping for and say, you know, what, what am I hoping for? Is it, um, is it that, you know, I, I get through this COVID pandemic without getting infected with SARS-CoV-2 before I get, you know, I can get, I can get the vaccine or, or is it um, something you want to change in your life or, or the lives of your patients, but, but what are you hoping for? And then, then the next step, which I think is so important is then saying, well, what can I do today to get closer to that, which I'm hoping for? And I think that's a really big and hard step because I think most of us, we want to hope, and then we want to just kind of go back to whatever we were already doing and then just hope that that thing happens without effort. I mean, I certainly felt that way. I mean, I would have loved it if my doctor had, you know, just kind of come out with this, you know, surprise medicine that could save my life. But, um, but I think that the harder thing is, is to act. It's everyone hopes. We all hope, we all pray, we all wish, but the harder thing is to act. So I think reflecting on what you're hoping for to take action the second thing is that there is no way I would have survived the challenges I did without having incredible support from my dad, my sisters, and, and Caitlin, who was my girlfriend at the time, now my wife. And so I think that just even though we can't physically be with, with our loved ones in many cases, embracing virtual ways to do this, I mean, it feels like we're in, in the same room in some ways right now, Shadi. And, and I think that, you know, making sure that just because we can't physically be together, that we're not spending the time together like this, I think is, is so important during tough times. During a tough time, I think you have to have the people that you love with you. And the third thing that I would say, which I think is, it's a lesson that my mom taught me. And um, during really tough times like this, many of us are encouraged to find silver linings. We're encouraged to say, okay, this has been awful, but at least I've spent more time with my two-year-old. Cause that's true. You know, I'm, I'm at home, so there's less commute time. You know, I get a chance to, to see her. And I think it is important to look for silver linings, but what my mom taught me um, as she was battling cancer and, and before she even battled cancer was that during really tough times, we shouldn't just look for silver linings, we should look to create silver linings. So we should think to ourselves, what can I do today that can make this a little bit easier for someone I love, or maybe even create something positive out of this really tough time. And so I'm really hoping that that this drug repurposing work that we're doing can be a silver lining that comes from COVID because COVID has proven to us that you can do drug repurposing. Like I said, literally hundreds of drugs have been tried for COVID. So we can do it. It's not that we can't do it. Um, we just need to do it well and we need to do it better than we've been doing it. So I hope that those are a couple of silver linings that come from this. And, and I hope that your listeners will, will just think about that a little bit during really tough times. You know, is there something that I can do today that, um, that makes this a little bit easier for someone else? Well, David, um, 
Thank you so much. I, I can't thank you enough for uh, just uh, bearing with uh, with me and with uh, with my questions for uh, the um, for the entire hour. I appreciate it and um, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. So all my best to you and best health and well wishes. Okay, folks. Thank you for listening. This was um, this was excellent. I uh, I'm always inspired when I see the amazing work that David is doing. I hope you share with me that uh, this was great to listen to the work that David is doing, to what he has gone through, to the amazing journey that he had uh, endured. Um, so it's always wonderful to see David doing great work personally and amazing work professionally. I hope you've learned a few things uh, after you listen to this episode. And if you have, then my mission is partially accomplished because as you know, it takes a lot of time to accomplish the entire mission. And as you are listening to me, you know my philosophy. There's always room for improvement, right? If you're listening, you know that I believe there's always room for improvement. So tell me how I can improve on the healthcare unfiltered you can direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, that's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N, or you can send me an email to Shadi Nabhan, O-O at Outlook.com. You can also visit my website at www.shadinabhan.com and message me there and let me know what you think of the website as you browse various categories. And please, you can find us, as you know, on uh, all podcast outlets, as I told you. So subscribe to the show and um, write a review and rate the show if you have some uh, time. And I'm going to leave you with a saying that I really love by Mark Twain. And it's so fitting to the episode you just listened to. The secret of getting ahead is getting started. Until next time, take care.